I'm reacting against my own pride and age here, so leave me the hell alone and complain and rant about this damn webcomic thing that shouldn't exist. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Irenacast. I'm your host, Jeff, and with me, as always, is my brother-in-law, Alan, and his cousin, and my friend, Mona. We are post-evangelical ministers and theological thinkers grappling with our place in the progressive Christian world. Thank you for joining us for another conversation on faith and culture. This week, we are starting a brand new series on biblical interpretation, or how to read the Bible, or understanding the Bible, however you want to frame that. But we, way back in episode number four, we did talk about the Bible, because as post-evangelicals, the Bible was pretty central to our religious upbringing, as far as what we were told, and how we were to interact with it. In fact, I don't know about you guys, but my... The default solution when I was having a problem in life was from my pastors and leaders, read your Bible and pray more. But no one ever taught me, and I I would say that's probably true for all of us, and we'll get into that as we get into the conversation, but no one really taught me how to study the Bible outside of go to the Bible bookstore, get your NIV study Bible, and then whatever the little comments at the bottom says, that's the real interpretation of it. (laughs) The one, the one and real interpretation. Exactly. And it wasn't until I, I got into college and started my theology degree and my in my biblical studies background that I started to realize there's just, there's so many more layers to how we're supposed to interpret this book. And I think for me, at least that was the big number one thing that started pushing me away from evangelicalism is that there was, there, there wasn't the sense that, that there was a sense that the Bible was important, but the sense was more that the way we view the Bible is important, not studying the Bible is important. Hmm. Even that term studying the Bible is interesting. Yeah. Oh, good question. Yeah. What does it mean to study the Bible? Like we have we have Bible studies at churches, right? Bible study on Wednesday night. Let's study the Bible. You got to study your Bible. And uh, what happens when we study the Bible? Like where do we find meaning? What? Because there's all sorts of layers and questions you can ask the Bible, and all sorts of meanings come out of it. But you know which way is legitimate? <laughs> you know when it gives us the answers that we want. Um, <clears throat> I think for me, I was. It was expected that you would read the Bible in such a way that it was like kind of a, a pipeline of from God to us of history. And that's basically it. You just read it. You believe it. You do it. Right. And uh, unfortunately, that that's not just a, that's not just an oversimplified way of looking at it. It actually leads to a lot of different problems, I think, for people. Uh, and for me personally is like. Where where does the meaning come from? So when I'm reading a certain story, like I have to kind of assume that this is important, right? Oh, these people killed these people. And it's like, what is this teaching me? I wasn't taught to study in a way that asks critical questions, but more like, how can I apply this immediately to my life? And, you know, so I would think of things like, well, it's really important to worship God or you're going to die <laughs> or <laughs> maybe I need to kill my spiritual problems. I don't know. You know what I mean? There, I was trying to – it's like squeezing a lemon. Every morning I squeeze a lemon into my, into my water and it's kind of like I have to squeeze all this meaning out of it in a certain way and get all the right answers. And uh, unfortunately, it just it, – it covered over all this meaning and this importance that I really do see in the Bible that I've learned to start asking different questions and have helped me personally. But – this episode gets me excited because the question really does stand when you're coming out of an evangelical context. How do you look at the Bible? Like, how do you read it? Does it matter to you anymore? You know, it does to me, but that question is different for everyone. 
I think. Yeah, it's interesting that you said the word answers a couple of times, and I think that I, that resonates <laughs> with me. Yeah, the Bible's yeah. your, you know, you're taught that the Bible's your guidebook, your source of all wisdom, and this is a long history and evangelical tradition of, of biblical centrality. Um, and, and really, I, I think we weren't taught to it, we were encouraged to read it in the, in the Pentecostal faith that I grew up in, in a non-historical, ahistorical way, because you are taught that the Holy Spirit, I'm using a little bit different language than you used just now, Alan, mm-hmm. but that the Holy Spirit will like give you understanding as you read. And so it doesn't really matter what happened, you know, two, 3,000 years ago. What matters is what you're gleaning from it today. And so you're going to, you know, read as a guidebook. And that's oversimplified. I think there, you know, there's a lot of conservative and evangelical and Pentecostal people who, who read the Bible and, and really do understand a lot of the historical context. And so we're not, so mm-hmm. just to set the record for this, ep- these episodes, we're not trying to, um, correct any harsh wrongs where uh, I, I would say, <laughs> maybe you, you guys disagree, but we're not trying to tell every, anyone they're wrong in the way that they've approached the Bible per se. What we're trying to do is broaden the scope of there's a lot of ways to read and study the Bible that aren't just looking for personal answers, but like you said, Alan, like open up tons of sources of meaning. Um, Mm. And this is the result of scholarship in the last hundred years in particular, um, but stretching farther back than that. So how do we read this book or these, this collection of books? Um, What do we do with it? And maybe how we can hold off, seeking for personal answers and moral answers that apply directly to our lives. Just hold off on that a bit and look at some of these other ways of study. I think that's a really good thing to bring up in the sense of what we're trying to accomplish with these things. Because just like every every one of us that are moving away from evangelicalism, we have this void that's there. And one of the main things within our evangelical tradition, like you were saying, is the Bible. So that we're, our, our goal and hope through this is to provide a way to now keep that tradition of reading the Bible and holding it to a certain degree of, of relevance in your life, but with new tools that help maneuver through it. And the ones that we kind of had to discover in a sense, the hard way. Yeah. For, for me, the Bible is still very important and it's very central to my faith, but the new meaning, the new tools that are able to use are the only reason that it's still central for me. Honestly, <laughs> if I was stuck with interpreting the Bible as I was given I don't know what I would do with it. I know a lot of people just move away from it completely, but discovering all of this other meaning is is an important aspect of why the Bible means so much to me. Um, I think out of all of our conversations, that's something that has kept coming up is that I'm still so tied to this and um, it's still so central, but that's specifically because of all of these other things that I've been introduced to. So if you're looking for a reason to stick with the Bible, I'm, they're out there. Just, That's you funny you said that actually because when I before I started academic study of the Bible in seminary, I really did not like it, and I've actually learned to appreciate mm. it a lot more because of these intellectual tools. <laughs> it's like revived it for me actually, and I, it, it's a lot more interesting. Um, it's a lot more interesting. Like my imagination is much more engaged reading the Bible with these uh, academic tools that we're about to discuss in these next three episodes. Yeah, so these episodes are going to be framed around some questions that Alan came up for this, because I think this was uh, really came out of some of the stuff that, that Alan wanted, well, that we've all wanted to discuss. But as you know, through the history of the show, Alan gets particularly excited about uh, these issues. And he came up with three kind of great questions 
that are going to help kind of guide the conversations for these next episodes. So today we really want to zero in on how do we read the Bible as literature. And then next week, talking about how is the Bible written over time, not only written, but read over time, because not every era of the church or the people of God have read it in the same way either. And then finally, how do we look at how do we read the Bible in and out of its original context and and bridge those different gaps? So, Alan, would you say that that's an accurate description of the, the direction that, that you were thinking we should head with these conversations? Yes. There's a lot of different ways, a lot of different questions that fall into a bunch of different subgroups. But that's a good breakdown of sort of the main umbrellas of, of different areas that we could dive into. I think all of three of those things, the Bible is literature, <clears throat> the Bible's development over time or being read over time and the Bible in and out of its original context. I think all of them touch upon one major thing for me uh, at the very beginning. And that is where I believe the Bible's inspired and I believe it's important. And I do believe it is connected to God, but where is meaning located? Like, where is the meaning that God has for people, for me, where is that located? Is it in, you know, the microscopic level, like looking at the definition of one word and breaking it down? Yeah, probably. Is it in like the mountain view? If you zoom out 10,000 miles and look at the Bible or, or a book in the Bible as a whole, is it in there or is it in the way that pieces are put together or in the flow and beginning to ask questions that are big like that? Um, you kind of let God or the spirit or whatever's happening in the Bible do its thing instead of restricting it. It's more of a way of listening and thinking about maybe God uses literature and not just (laughs) that's the big thing for me. I used to believe that God could only speak in one way that God could only influence, you know, human culture in a certain way and interact in a certain way. But once I allowed God to speak through literature and ancient literature it, it blew up my mind and my faith into this new realm where I found so much more meaning and it was honestly so much more rewarding to read the Bible. So today is about literature. Yeah, today is about literature. And I want to say a quick note too, for those of you who are listening who feel uncomfortable with the academic study of the Bible, because there's a long tradition of this in, in some communities that um, that people who study the Bible academically are trying to like um, erase the spirituality from the Bible or erase the divinity of Jesus or, or any of the above, right? So it can be perceived as very threatening. And it's funny because even when I started studying the Bible academically, um, even though I was kind of, like I said earlier, done with the Bible and mad at it, you know, just I'm done with this. I don't want to study it, study it anymore. Even when I started to study it academically in seminary, uh, it still felt threatening. It still felt threatening to treat the Bible like um, like with scientific method. So I want to say to those of you who might come to this with a bit of reluctance, okay, no one's trying to take your faith away, first of all. Nobody's trying to take your faith away. What we're trying to learn to do is to put on different lenses. And we use that word a lot in academic the academic world, right? So if, if you ever worn a pair of sunglasses that have like a rose color or a yellow color or a blue color and you put them on and you might not be able to see the color of the lens, right? So it might block out some information, but you're able to see other things come into highlight or come into view that you didn't see before as clearly or you didn't notice before. Okay, so we're putting lenses off and then we're on and then we're taking them off. You know, it's not something that you have to to stay permanently affixed to your face. You're just using it temporarily to gain a different perspective. And then you can put on a different lens and then you can put on a different lens, right? So it doesn't have to be threatening. I just want to say a note to that to those of you who come at this from that perspective. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think also along with that, it's important to recognize that when we're talking about meaning, we may not be talking about meaning in the sense of what previously was insinuated in our evangelical context, like not answers. And we kind of talk Capital about this. A. We're not looking for, yeah, we're not looking for like the answers of the universe, but meaning. And we forget sometimes when we, as we talk about the Bible as literature, we forget that it is literature. And we forget also that the Hebrew scriptures are, are beautifully written ancient documents. Like they're beautiful literature. That's why community colleges and even regular secular colleges across America still teach a class on the Bible as literature because there's beautiful poetry in it. There's beautiful prose and narrative that are a part of the cultural landscape of the ancient Near East during that time. And it's important for us to have moments where we approach the text in that way and just appreciate it for what it is in the same way that we would appreciate a beautiful movie or a song that bring meaning to our lives, but don't necessarily give us answers. And I think that's an important way that we forget to approach the Bible, um, especially in, in the context of it as literature. So you can still hold the canonicity of it while seeing it as literature. Yeah. I was going to say that uh, God is still, for me, you can still see God as operative in that. To call it literature, to call it, you know, ancient literature is not to say that it's irrelevant. It's to say that God might be operating differently than we first expect when we read something. So at the end of this session (laughs) this morning, um, my hope is that people will be able to look at the Bible. Like when I, when I first came into seminary, the Bible was very flat, right? It had like one one meaning across two the dimensional. Whole thing. Yeah, two dimensional. It was like none of it contradicts. There's no tensions. There's no, um, you know, it all agrees, and it's all this one projection of God's uh, word for the world. And now, like when I hold my Bible, it's more like holding an encyclopedia. It's more like holding a collection of poems and different works and things that are, have different structures and purposes for even being written. And my hope when I read the Bible is that I can listen to the writers in their own way. Instead of forcing meaning onto the text, for me, I love to see meaning come out of it. Some people talk about the difference between eisegesis and exegesis, as in letting the text speak for itself and, and bringing meaning out of it being exegesis, and eisegesis being, you know, making it say what we want it to say and injecting our own meaning. Um, and I think we do that on the whole when it comes to different genres. So the very first thing we do in talking about the Bible as literature is think about the Bible as different genres. Like you wouldn't pick up a collection of poems from an American poet and expect to learn about how to fix your car. If it's a poem about a car, you're expecting to learn certain things, but you're not going to read it in the same way as you would a manual. So there are all kinds of genres in the Bible. And the very first step is kind of figuring out what genre the book you're reading or the work you're reading is in. Yeah, because they all, all those genres have different purposes. They, they all have completely different purposes, according to the original writers, like you said, Alan. Um, so yeah, a book of poetry and a book of law, they both have intention and they both have meaning in them, but they have different purposes and they should be read differently. Um, it's funny. I, so I, I taught music for a year um, to uh, like grade school kids. It was a really long year and uh, <laughs> I don't think about it often, but we did a books of the Bible song. It was at a Christian school. And I remember the day that I put on uh, the, 
the whole list of the books of the Bible start to finish on the projector. And I showed the kids, hey, kids, like this is this breaks down like the first five books. You call that the Pentateuch. And then we have, um, you know, law and then we have wisdom books and we have Psalms and then we have prophecy and then we have apocalypse and gospel and epistles. And the teachers were like, oh, my God, I've been going to church my whole life and I've never heard anyone explain this to me that the Bible is actually organized by genre to some degree. Um, a lot of the books have, a lot of the books have actually micro genres within them. So there could be Psalms and law laid right next to each other, right? Or poetry and law right, laid next to each other. But for the most part, when the, uh, canonized, the canonizers, what do you call them? People putting the canon together, uh, for the Christian Bible organized these books, um, in a way that makes it easy for us to access. So that's kind of cool. If you've never heard that before. And the Hebrew Bible as well. The, pe- the people who put that together and compiled it did the same with like major prophets, lesser prophets, law, you know, history, different things like that. And I that. think it's important also to realize that the when we speak of literature, I think what we have in our head is us sitting down and reading a book or reading a poem or whatever. But the majority of the people or the original audience that these literary genres were intended for were to listen, to hear. So... As part of this, it's it's not only just like what's the meaning, but what was the what was the author intending to invoke from its listeners, which I think is an important thing because we've kind of regulated scripture reading as just this this part of a service where we just read a verse or whatever. But there there's an art form to even that part of it and how the literary how the literature was heard. Yeah, definitely. There's a there's a phrase there's a German phrase that uh, biblical scholars like to use called the Sitz im Leben. It's S I T Z I M. L-E-B-E-N, sits in Laban. It means setting in life. So it's actually a really helpful tool to uh, uncovering the intention behind these texts, right? What what were the texts meant to do? Was this a song that was sung in the temple for the whole of the society to enjoy together? Or was this a scroll sitting on the shelf of a scribe somewhere in a... Um, uh, in a school of history. Um, so understanding the sits in Laban or the setting in life helps us understand how to read the books today as literature. For instance, yeah. If, if you took one of the Psalms, which would likely be sung in the temple and you looked at it like law, you might get, you might confuse things. Like I always think about the Psalms that pray to God to have God like punish the wicked, break their teeth, you know, um, (laughs) like kill their, kill these people in precatory prayers when if you just read those by yourself like i read in the backyard each morning if i just opened up my bible and i read through that and i thought about those being completely appropriate things for me to do as a person uh instructive for the youth or something you know i'm gonna go to youth group and be like it's important that we kill wicked people i would completely miss the fact that these were songs sung by an oppressed people. It was in a is in a situation that's very different than mine. And the meaning might be located in the fact that songs sung to God out of the depths of our heart and the things that we're actually feeling is appropriate. Maybe that's the level of meaning that I can extract from that, as opposed to looking at it with a microscope thinking other questions, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. When you just, it's a really good example. Like when you were saying that, I was thinking about this psalm that says, um, we wish that you would dash the heads of the Babylonian babies against the rocks, right? That's a really famous 
really violent passage. Um, so if you if you just look at the Bible on like a verse by verse basis, or even like a few verses basis, and you don't see the larger genre context, you can miss some really important stuff. And you're really prone to miss actually misinterpret the whole thing. Like, like you said, Alan, if you just take that verse and just apply it to life, like, you, you miss the whole idea that expressing feelings are within the strong religious tradition that are is considered good you know so um yeah giving space to oppressed people to pray out to cry out to god <laughs> you, you miss know, the political the, context yeah might be the meaning yeah. yeah and you miss the beautiful nuance of certain things like one of my favorite books of the hebrew scriptures is jonah it is this beautifully laid out narrative like it is it is the perfect story it's like textbook you know you have the first two chapters paralleling the second two chapters and there's all these little things that are building this beautiful wonderful story and we've regulated it to well there's no way he could be in the belly of a whale for three days you know what i mean like we (laughs) we concentrate on the wrong things and we miss the beauty and nuance and intricacy of of all these beautiful narratives that are there yeah that's that's actually there's a name for that genre is historical biblical epic um, and so if you, it's, so it's interesting if you can identify that Jonah's a, a historical epic or a narrative epic. Um, what other epics do we know about? Oh, Homer's Iliad. Oh, we can read those, um, maybe in common because they weren't written that far apart. Um, maybe the how epic do they, of Gilgamesh. Yep. Yeah. Maybe how do they have similar, um, plot points or how, how do they function the same way? How do they climax the same way? How do they have the same or different kinds of revolutions? How, how do each of these characters relate to their respective gods? Um, how do they experience conflict? All of, you know, you, you can start to tease out a lot of the, um, the motifs in the text if you treat it as literature and see things that you maybe wouldn't have appreciated before. And the main meaning for the author, him or herself, might actually be the step away from the genre that they're making. You read Genesis and you look at other creation accounts that that surround the area. Maybe there's a usual way of creating, you know, this this epic or this tale or whatever. And the break from regular structure might be the most significant thing. But we might miss yeah. it because we're trying, like you said, trying to recreate the history. And here's here's step number one for me. For me, as a post-evangelical, quasi-evangelical, whatever the heck I am, when I read the Bible, it used to be that I was creating in my mind a historical setting and just putting all the pieces together. This is just straight history. When I read the Gospels, when I read the Hebrew Bible, I'm thinking in terms of history. So I have a puzzle and I'm putting it together and I have a timeline in my brain and everything that is said is absolutely historical and that's how I have to read it. It's taking a step back from that and thinking of these books as books, um, you can start to ask different questions that have a whole set of different meanings. Like looking at a gospel, instead of looking at it as this little chunk of this is what Jesus's life looked like, you know, A plus B equals C, and then you make this little timeline, you can start to ask questions like, what is the author doing right now? Why is the author saying this here? instead of over there? And why is the author juxtaposing these two stories and ask better questions like that? Is it okay if I just jump into an example of how I like to read the gospel? We don't like examples here. Stay in theory <laughs> no, only. No examples. I literally have my Bible open. No so telling this stories. Is kind of exciting. <laughs> this is kind of oh. exciting. You, ha- uh, you just ruined the whole thing for me, Alan. Your Bible's open. I feel like oh. everything you say is going to be a sermon. <laughs> it's going to be. Uh, probably probably my favorite example of how I like to read, especially the gospels would be in Mark chapter six, all throughout the book of Mark. There's all kinds of topics that are interesting. 
that if you just read little chunks of it, you don't really get what the author is doing. One of those is sight. Like the disciples fail to see who Jesus is, but all these outsiders are being healed, right? And their sight's being opened and sight's an important motif. And reading the development of sight or maybe unnamed women in the story or food itself and how food functions are the types of narrative questions that you can ask that bring out meaning. And for me, my, my, my favorite uh, juxtaposition of two stories is the feast with Herod, the king, who is you know oppressing John the Baptist and Jesus' followers, and then the feeding of the 5,000. So you have Herod in a banquet, and uh, his daughter is doing a dance, right? And she's very... Um, what's the word? She's very convincing, Okay, and she's doing this dance and entertaining all these people. And he tells her, you can name up to half of my kingdom, whatever you want. I will give it to you. Right. And she says, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. Well, Herod has this moment where he doesn't want to kill John the Baptist for a lot of different you know, political reasons that this is not a good thing. He shouldn't have done this. He's caught in this trap where uh, although he's a king, now he's beholden to this person who's asking something he shouldn't do. Anyway, he has John the Baptist executed. And then in the very next uh, part of the chapter, the very next story is Jesus going out into the wilderness. So he's not in the palace, right? Jesus sits people down in these groups and sitting them down in the groups. They're sitting in banqueting style groups. It's very technical language. So it's this sharp, sharp contrast between a king with a feast, with feasting groups, who is beholden to the people he should be leading. He's not acting like a king. And here you have Jesus feeding these people in the wilderness, in these banqueting groups, and he's actually delegating. He's not the one who is at the whim and will of the people. He's telling his disciples to go out and feed one another. So it's super interesting, the the, the difference that the author is setting up between the supposed king and the real one, and how the two, you know, in, in one instance, you have a king dealing death, and in the other, you have this miraculous expression of bringing life from nothing, you know, for the people who are like the least of these. And so uh, the concepts of king and kingdom come up over and over and over in that book, but in this one instance, it's a very sharp distinction between what the world thinks is a king and what this author thinks a king should actually be doing in Jesus. Fascinating. Yeah, it's... Uh, I, I, I think the hinge in this case for me is when Jesus looks at the crowd, it says that Jesus sees them as sheep without a shepherd. And that's a direct criticism of the leadership of, of Herod, Herod Antipas, is that he's not actually leading the people. And what they need is somebody to lead in the way that Jesus would. So so those are all meanings that you would totally miss. If you would just look at, you know, the miracle, there's 5,000 people, that must mean this, you know, asking certain questions, which are okay. We should be able to ask those questions. But if those are the only questions we ask, we miss the larger thing that's happening in the so, story. So by teasing out those nuances in the text, in the genre, in the literature, and the way the story has been composed, you are able to see what the author was trying to do with it, and the author's voice comes through more, right? Is that mm -hmm. how you would say it? Yeah. yeah. That the author has a, an agenda, is an yeah. important thing to to think about. And and a note about that, there's actually a lot of we a lot of the books of the Bible we don't actually know who wrote them. Um I mean it's in 
in older biblical literature studies, like people thought like Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. And we know pretty certainly nowadays that that's not mm-hmm. true. It's much more possible that whole schools of scholars and scribes composed these books together or, or edited them over time, which we'll talk about more later. But um, when you really start studying like the Hebrew or the Greek of some of these books, especially in the, the Jewish Bible, which uh, note, we say the Jewish Bible instead of Old Testament because the words Old Testament really came out of an anti-Semitic period of biblical Christian biblical uh, interpretation and, and criticism um, that tried to erase the Jewishness of the Bible. So we're, we say the Jewish Bible because we want to be mindful that that is the, the complete holy works of another world religion. Right. So, and it so, helps, it helps respect the books for what they're actually doing. Yeah. It, it goes against the levelingness, right. Instead of forcing our, perspective on the books it's giving them space to say what they're actually saying <laughs> to recognize that they had a meaning when they were originally written not yeah and those terms are automatically creating one lesser than the other right old and new mm-hmm. yeah well because for for centuries right going back to Irenaeus, Tertullian, Augustine, early church fathers, it was completely appropriate and a good, considered a good thing to um, see like uh, analogies and typographies or uh, typographies is that the word? No, not typographies. What's the word I'm looking for? Ty- typography. Typology. Typology. Typologies. Typology. Thank you. Typologies in the quote unquote Old Testament. So they would say, oh, you know, this whole story of David, that whole thing was just written to point to Jesus. And it has, it doesn't have very much historical merit. So we can just read Jesus into, back into it, like retroactively. But and there's nowadays, some of that that actually happens in the Bible. But you're right. In the New Testament. But yeah. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of allegorical, allegorical. The, the technical term during that time would be the allegorical interpretation. Like, uh, oh, the, the gates of Eden represent Mary's legs being opened and Jesus being born. <laughs> like, literally, that's that's one of that's one of the I think that might have been origin who said that. So but that I, was in a totally appropriate. I didn't hear that one in Sunday school. Really. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> so that would be yeah. considered like uh, interpretive acrobatics. So we're not going that direction. It's one way to go. Um, it's it's <laughs> it it's but it's not considered a quote unquote legitimate way to go these days. Like we're we're, we're intent on treating the Jewish Bible as the Jewish mm. Bible. Um, but once you once you get into the study of this stuff, you realize that there's tremendous complexity in the original language that doesn't transfer over into English. Um, and I'll tell a brief story about my experience with uh, biblical interpretation. So I I was taking a pr- class on the prophets, um, and this Alan, your story reminded me of this. And I had to do a presentation on the book of Ezekiel, and I was so mad about it because Ezekiel is some of the most violent imagery in the Old Testament regarding violence against women. Um, it not specifically because it's talking about Israel, right? As um, uh, the, using the metaphor of a a woman who is been quote-unquote whorish and it it talk the prophecies in ezekiel say that god is going to give israel over to her um the people she's been unfaithful with and they will dismember her and kill her and because she's this unfaithful whore of a woman like it's it's awful it's awful ezekiel 16 in particular is is so violent so i was really frustrated and felt sick that i had to do this presentation so I get into the study of this and I realize, oh, Ezekiel is one of the most complexly written books, though the, not only the imagery, but the way this book is written is not accidental. It's actually very carefully constructed in a chiasmic structure, C-H-I-A-S-M, chiasmic, which means it has this 
um, completely symmetrical parallel climax and decline. So the verses on either side of that action correlate directly with each other throughout the whole book and and within individual chapters. Um, so the structure of it, like if you could map it visually, it's absolutely breathtakingly beautiful. The content of it is problematic for our modern era. So I started doing more work with this book and how do I explain this or how not even to explain it, but to understand it in a way that doesn't make me feel sick to my stomach because I can't, my modern ear is my modern conception of, you know, you just don't use violent imagery about women when you're trying to talk about politics. You just don't do it, you know, so I can't stomach that today. So I'm, I'm starting to do more work on this and um, I'm saying, okay, so I'm using a literary lens. I've got my literary glasses on that are, you know, showing me some things. What if I put another set of lenses on there that showed me a di- completely different things? So I'm using a literary lens. And then on top of that lens, I'm using a post-colonial, a cultural post-colonial trauma theory lens. So Ezekiel, as the book, w- takes place, it not necessarily was written during, but it ta- the, it, that setting was uh, during and after the Babylonian exile. So this is during a time when these people who fought so hard to keep their culture and their nation together, been invaded by the Babylonian empire. They've had all of their um, structures, like their institutions decimated. All of their uh, intelligent people, like all of their cultural leaders have been exported and they're just left in this like smoldering ashes of what they were once were okay so if you're using a lens of cultural trauma you can see this is a people who've been through um something akin to psychological genocide they've had all of their structures dismantled and so wow that really gives me a new perspective for understanding why they would use such strongly violent language about what's happening to their country and why god might be judging them or trying to understand or trying to make meaning of it so if you read these passages with a literary lens and maybe with some other things helping to inform you you start understanding the meaning of the grief that's occurring um, in this book and what they're trying to express, right? And then once I started seeing that, I started seeing all these ties between maybe that situation and some contemporary political situations where people, you know, are, are where their um, country or culture or um, societies have been dismantled by war and they're refugees or they've been in captivity, you know, so you start seeing things that you wouldn't otherwise be able to see is the whole point of that story. And th- those are, those are things that we're definitely going to be addressing even more in the other episodes, like reader response in and out of context, social, you know, historical context, stuff like that. I, be, because all of these layers of meanings touch, touch upon each other. They're not cleanly cut. They're all interconnected. So it's, it's yeah. easy to slap a label, but you're right. Like when you read, you have a lot of different lenses on at the same time. <laughs> it's not just one or the other. But the um, reason we start with literature is because it's literature. <laughs> <laughs> because it is. Because it is a narrative, or you know, it, it it's the only way to really understand what's happening is to begin with the idea that there is an author with a perspective, yeah, with with an agenda, and this was yeah. used for a certain purpose. So that's what you're mm-hmm. trying to get out first before anything else. As we're as we're talking about this, I think some maybe like some practical tools that we can walk away from it is going back a little bit to what Alan was talking about with the Gospels, where he mentions the juxtaposition of these two stories. Is that as we're reading, one of the things that I found was helpful was, and then also connected to what with what Mona was saying, is looking for words and symbols that pop up on a regular basis. So if you're reading a passage and you notice, wow, they're using this word a lot, don't take that for granted. Like 
stop and look that word up and find out if it's the same word in the original language. And then also for different symbols. Like if you read through the book of John, I encourage you to stop and look every time a garden or water is mentioned. Those are important symbols that are trying to paint this large picture of the narrative. And these little things, you know, as you pick up, they seem little initially, but the meaning and the, um, the depth of what those things are trying to tell can bring a lot to your time as you're trying to reframe how you're going to read the Bible and how you're going to look at it. Awesome. How a word is used in one single book is, is a massive tool to be able to understand what's happening. That's good. I think another thing I would add to the toolkit would be uh, intertextuality. So when something is mentioned in a text, it could be referring, it could be an allusion to something completely different. So when you read the gospels, there's like these mentions of things like son of man or uh, other ideas that are actually calling on cultural items that have existed for Jewish people in the Hebrew Bible long before. Like Daniel, like I, I can't even imagine trying to interpret or read through Mark without an understanding of Daniel without understanding of the the function of the son of man in Daniel and how that's being applied in Mark. Uh, I'll give you one, one instance of this. Probably my favorite would be first Corinthians and first Corinthians 10. Paul's uh, making this argument. And then he randomly starts saying that, you know, they all drank from the same spiritual drink. He's talking about Jewish people. They all drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. So he's he's reading back into the story of the Jewish people in the wilderness and their experience of this rock that gave them water. And he's saying that rock was Christ. But that phrase, the rock that followed them, doesn't even make sense to us. We just I like I read that in my life and just yeah, rocks skipped don't completely move. over it. Right? They don't but in rabbinical literature, <laughs> in in the, the tradition, they're it was said that a rock actually rolled and followed the Jewish people. You won't find this in the Hebrew Bible, right? In the canon of the Hebrew Bible. Hmm. But there was extra biblical literature that said, yeah, there was this rock that followed them. So Paul is actually making a cultural reference to a different text that we don't even necessarily know about. And so there's this meaning that is being imported. He's drawing on this meaning. And if we don't have the original <laughs> text, it's hard to see what he's actually doing. So all throughout the Bible, I mean, uh, I think I gave this example before, but if somebody said something about chopping down a, a cherry tree, because you're an American, you might know that there's a story about, you know, George Washington chopping down a cherry tree and telling the truth and, and stuff like that. It might call up all of this meaning for you as someone else. If they read it, they might not see it. I just want to say every single text in your Bible that you have in your hand is filled with intertextual illusions. And yeah. so just spending time getting to know them is one area that you might find things that you've never known. And we, sh and we shouldn't be surprised about this. Like every culture has idioms that are, you know, congruent with what they're talking about. Like one of the ones that comes to mind always when I think about this idea is our use of the, the I don't know if you guys, you've heard the term jump the shark. 
Yes. Oh yeah, I've heard that. I don't know what it's called. It's from them. So, Jump the Shark. Like we'll say, like ridiculous. if a TV show like gets really ridiculous, we'll say it's Jump the Shark. Well, it's a reference to Happy Days when the Fonz was water skiing and he jumped over a shark in one episode. And for that, the fans of that show, it became this moment where like this is too ridiculous. We can't stand bored. We're done with the show. Hmm. So now, anytime something like gets too ridiculous within its own context, we say it's Jump the Shark. I'm totally it's, gonna it's, use that now. I never knew what that meant. <laughs> But we do that all the time, right? Like, even internet memes take take on a life of their own, and uh, they become inside jokes, you know? So, there's like you're saying, something similar happens there, Alan. Like, those references uh, mean something to the original hearers, and that's how they were yeah. preserved. Even on a big scale, it's more than just idioms or sayings. You can read an entire gospel as an attempt to explain one chapter in Daniel. You know what I mean? They, they might yeah. have massive import. It's not yeah. just well, a more obvious example of that is the beginning of the book of John in the beginning. You know, I mean, there's there's a mm. clear reference to Genesis in the way that they're beginning to start that. And we see this, you know, good art references other art. Yeah. You know what I mean? Going back to that whole jump the shark thing. There was a episode in Arrested Development where Henry Winkler, the guy who played the Fonz, literally jumped over a shark. No, like, I didn't. I miss yeah. that. And I love that show. That's so funny. See? You have to know the receptivity. Okay, so I want to add another tool to the toolkit. Um, also, is similar to what you guys were saying. Um, the uh, the lens of the author during their writing, uh, not just the intention or the meaning, but like who the author might sympathize with or be writing to, is really really important. And I'll give you an example. In the opening uh, couple chapters of Matthew, uh, the author of Matthew goes to a lot of lengths to establish Jesus's Jewish genealogy and his Jewishness. And the king of the Jews, Jesus is the king of the Jews. And a lot of the the language um, being used in the book of Matthew is very, very Jewish. Um, Whereas if you read the introduction of Luke, it's, uh, I'm writing to you, most excellent Theophilus, to a Greek name, either a Hellenized Jew or a Gentile, a Greek Gentile. So Luke is not really emphasizing Jesus's Jewishness, nor is that its intention. It's trying to explain the gospel to a Gentile audience. So you see, um, you know, and it's funny because you can read Matthew and Luke in parallel, and there's a ton of crossover, which we'll talk about in uh, our next couple episodes of, of uh, this series. Um, but the authors themselves had very, very, very different um, I don't want to use the word agenda because that sounds sneaky, but they had different um, goals for what that text was was meant to be doing. Yeah, I think agenda is a perfect way to say it. Agenda? You think <laughs> yeah, so? I think, I, yeah, I think there's I, I, honestly read first and second Kings versus first and second Chronicles and tell me that those two that are talking about the same kind of history do not have completely different agendas because they do. And it's important in that to delineate also not only the time frame in which the author is writing about, but the time frame in which they are writing about that time frame, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Like the the context in which they're writing it can sometimes influence the way they look back at a certain thing. Like if I wrote something today about the seventies, I have not just the context and what I know historically about the seventies, but I also have thirty years of stereotypes and rhetoric and certain perception of what the seventies is. So that's a balance between those two things as well. There's a great book that I read recently on the gospels that kind of talk about 
the the era in which they were written and it's called i think it's called heart and mind and it's this really good book about really why we have the gospels formed the way they are and in connection to the liturgy actually and and the three-year reading cycle and how each of the contexts in which they were written even though they're written writing about the same period really influences the way they structure them yeah, yeah and, would, and that's something again would, that we'll we'll be touching on in the third episode on context because you're right. It's not like there was this spirit hovering. Oh, it's not like the author themselves are this disembodied person watching everything happen. Right? They're they're well. God told leader. them, Alan. God told <laughs> Let, them. Let's add another layer of complexity on that. Some biblical prophecy, and this this will take. You know, if you're interested in this, go research it. But sometimes the ways that um, Jewish scribes would write history is as if it were going to happen. So they write it in a prophetic genre. They're describing past events, but they're talking about it in future tense. So that's where things get really co- complicated, I think, especially for those of us coming out of a conservative place where prophecy is a really high um, pedestal. You know, like I, I talked to someone who um, like was still... Yeah, I, I talked to someone a couple of years ago who, who was maintaining um, evangelical Christian faith because of prophecy, because of biblical prophecy. Like, well, you know, if, if God can give people, um, you know, insight into the future, then God must be real. This is, this is miraculous. This is, you know, and I, I didn't want to burst their bubble at the time, but like a lot of prophecy was written in hindsight. I'm sorry to tell mm-hmm. you it's true. Or it was at least edited what we call redacted in hindsight, which we'll talk more about later. But it's important to know that when you're reading stuff in the Bible, like um, that seems really futuristic, like Daniel, like you said, Alan, or like Revelation, mm-hmm. it's actually describing past or current events in ways that seem really fantastical. So and that's not and that's not necessarily meant to be tricky. It's not necessarily meant to deceive people. Like people think that, oh, if that was written after the fact, but they're not being honest about it. That's not how literature operated in the ancient world. So yeah, that's not how history careful. operated either. And I think that that's important is that <laughs> yeah. that history was based off of narrative, the, the lessons that we're learning and how this is going to happen. So but I think before we can get sidetracked, are there any because we got to wrap this up? Are there any last things that we want to point people towards? And I'll just say right now that. Uh, you'll definitely want to check out the show notes for this particular episode and the next two. Not that you ordinarily wouldn't, but for this one in particular, we're going to have a list of books and materials that we didn't necessarily mention in this conversation, along with kind of an outline of some of the things that we're talking about. Because we really are, we genuinely want this to be a resource for people to be able to to have in their toolbox, so to speak, if they really want to investigate scripture in a new way in their post-evangelical journey. So I want to recommend a really helpful tool. And this is funny because um, when I was going into this study, I was like, oh no, this is a really liberal resource. Like I'm going to lose my faith. Okay. So just think about it. It's not liberal. It's academic. Okay. So everyone can use this. Um, It's the new Oxford annotated NRSV Bible with Apocrypha. So this is like the keynote study Bible for anyone doing academic reading of the text. And instead of footnotes like, oh, this Bible verse will help you with your life and your relationships. It's like, no, it's like um, notes on uh, archaeology and history and criti- criticism lineage. So it's it's the Bible is notated with study references from scholars instead of from pastors or whatever. So it's a really helpful resource to just help you at, like start asking like better questions or to have different lenses as you read the text. And it's got the Apocrypha, which are the books that were written in between the Jewish Bible and the New Testament period. Um, so it opens up a lot of resources there for reading uh, other material that both 
a Jewish Bible and New Testament reference, but that Protestants in particular don't often know. So I recommend that. And I also recommend a book called How to Read the Bible as Literature by Leland Riken. He's one of the foremost scholars in um, Bible as Literature. And I got to take a class with him. And my the best day of that class was when we were talking about satire as a biblical genre. And he brought fake cigarettes for us all to sit and pretend to smoke during class. <laughs> it, was, it was really great. But that'll give you a really good insight because he's a literary scholar and he reads the Bible as if he's reading like any great literary work of art. And you'll see stuff that you've never, ever thought of seeing before. Um, so that's a really he, his books are a really great resource. What's important when you begin to read any specific work in, in the Bible, identify its genre, try, try to try to think deeply about what's what genre is this? How is it? How is it functioning? <clears throat> look for look for topics like ideas that keep coming up over and over or themes themes look for juxtaposition things that are set next to each other uh try to identify irony my one of my favorite things is irony there's a lot of irony in the bible that's supposed to be there that we might miss if we think that it's not going to be ironic or sarcastic um look for humor comedy uh tragedy <clears throat> some of these you know traditional things that are happening and then uh, I would recommend if something pops out to you, a word, Jeff mentioned looking up how a word is used throughout one work or one text, look up the website Blue Letter Bible. It's a resource that was given by Daniel Kirk. It's just this. It's pretty plain, but it does the job. Go in and type in uh, the verse you're looking at, and you can actually click the word, and you can find out the meaning of the word in the original languages. And you can also see how many times that word was used in that specific book. So just looking up how many times and where those words show up, connect bigger ideas. So give it a shot. Um, get your literary narrative criticism on and start to look at things a little bit differently. And I promise that there will be meanings that you may never have thought of before that God might really be intending for us to think about and use. And then... There are just three books that I would recommend. As always, Struggling with Scripture, Walter Brueggemann, Platcher, Blount, and others write in this book. It's a pretty thin one, and it's it's good just to kind of take a step out of the lens that you've been using before and maybe consider some other ones. The Last Word by N.T. Wright, I read it years ago when I was very much evangelical. I very much used one lens when I read the Bible. This one helped me step out of that to some degree. And lastly... Thirdly, Reading the Bible Again for the First Time by Marcus Borg. Taking the Bible Seriously but Not Literally is the subtitle. Uh, I'm only in the beginning part of this book, but it's helping me reframe my mind about ways I can ask questions and read the Bible differently. So I would recommend that as well. Um, I have one more resource to recommend. Um, in addition to the online resource, that I love the um, website BibleHub.com. So if you if you go there and you enter in the main search bar any passage of scripture and then two lines below it there's kind of some different words if you click on interlinear it'll show you the original Hebrew with the English right underneath that corresponds to that word. It's such a cool reference. And then you can click on the numbers that refer to the concordance. So you can see that word that's being used in that passage alongside every other instance of the word. It is the coolest, most three-dimensional online Bible tool that I've ever come across. And if you don't even, if you have no Greek or Hebrew training, you can still use it and make good use out of it. So yeah, Bible Hub interlinear study is very good. 
And she was not paid to say that. I was not paid. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> I wish someone paid us to say something. Anyway. Right. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm not going to add to the to the long list. We'll we'll provide something in the, the show notes as far as all the list of things that mentioned here and then not mentioned here. And this will be kind of ongoing as we go through the thing. So let us know what you think. Let us know if you have any resources to add to this particular episode. And you can do that in the comment section at irenacast.com slash 63. And there you'll find the links and the information for all the stuff that we're talking about. And then for any other questions, comments, or concerns, or suggestions for the show in general, you can find all the ways to contact us at irenacast.com slash feedback. On the other side of music, we're going to be bringing back a segment called Pursuit of the Trivial. So this is our second round of Pursuit of the Trivial. The first time we did this was in episode 34, our Halloween episode. And basically the premise of this is very Seinfeldian in nature, where each of us have come up with a topic or a question that is pretty trivial when you think about it, but we're going to have lengthy, not maybe not lengthy, but we're going to have heated discussion or debate about these particular, particularly trivial questions or issues. That sounds about right, right? Yeah, I feel strongly about things that don't matter, so this, this works for me. Yeah, I think we all do <laughs> on a certain level. I try to practice nonsense as a spiritual component of my life. <laughs> a spiritual discipline. Because, yeah, spiritual discipline of a nonsense, you know? Because, like, sense makes more like sense it. when there's nonsense there you go. involved, <laughs> I think, you know, to, like, highlight its importance. We're existing in the inverse, the shadow side of sense, you could say. Can I go first? Because I'm just on a roll with the talking. You might as well. Uh, go for okay. it. Okay. What, in your opinion, this is a really important, like, life-changing debate that's about to happen, mm -hmm. okay? This says a lot about you as a person and your moral character and your taste in both beauty and love. What, in your opinion, is the best webcomic on the internet? Webcomic. Think, think, think about it long and hard. It's very important. <laughs> you're, you're the best uh. webcomic Sorry, I, I tried not to say a joke about what you just said. That's I'm not sure what mind. a webcomic is. Uh, oh, like, my God. My, so, what? so yeah. So, there you go. Jeff's already, you know. <laughs> Jeff, you I, lost so hard. This is wrong because a lot of it isn't funny <clears throat> and it's probably a little offensive at times. But I, I probably laugh the hardest or smile the most when I look at cyanide and happiness. Very, very inappropriate. Probably shouldn't even say it out loud. No, that's great. <laughs> I like inappropriate humor. Uh, okay. I am... Um, I'm a comic book fan. I'm a comic fan. But when... Um, man, this is making me feel old. But when did when did this become a thing? It's just... It's, a, it, oh, my so gosh. What, for, from what I understand, long. it's just... Oh, my gosh. No, no. No, like, I understand that the web has always had different comics. But when did it become its own genre just because of the platform it's published on? Oh because it's gosh. only published on the Jeff. web. Just like you wouldn't call a blog a newspaper... If it's only published on the web, it's a web comic. No. Okay, so here's my trivial thing <laughs> about this. I'm, I'm that doesn't make any the sense. word web comic right why, now. Why no? Well, if, if you published a book and all you did was a digital version on then you'd uh, have Amazon, e it's still a book. No, it's an ebook. The ebook e is how you read it, the form, but it's still a book. So itself. it's still a it's comic, but it's a web book. Yeah. It's so it's a digital comic then. Well, digital comic, I think, would mean, like, comic book style, right? Web comic, just, just like a comic strip, but, like, online web comic. It's a shorter format. 
It's a real thing, dude. <laughs> no, I, I get that it's time. a real thing, but I think it's silly. Like, why? Just why? because why of the, is it silly? People can do just it call it a comic way. that is on the web. Like, it's I don't web. know. It doesn't need to be its own genre web. just because of what shorter. it's printed on or <laughs> la- not printed on. Why can't there be its own genre? Why? Why is it? Okay, well, it, <laughs> it makes me mad more a than anything else that I not didn't know about comic. it. So <laughs> I'm reacting against my own pride and age here. So leave me the hell alone and complain and rant about this damn web comic thing that shouldn't exist. You just you want the word to go away. You want it to say comic, right? It's just a comic. But I'll but tell you why. Like, but then I'll, you'll march down to your comic store and you'll be like, "Hey, may I buy this comic that is on the web?" No, the, okay. you're diminishing I, the I artist by not in including them in the pantheon of all that is good in comics. Some, no, it, it would it's actually it's ruin it. Ruins it ruins the nature of comics in general to include web comics with them because usually web comics are not up to the scale that you would think i would say most of the sunday paper ones <laughs> are worse than anything i've seen on the web but i didn't know that no, there were are like, the they comics. are no that's true web comics are better than newspaper comics for no sure. we- agree web comics have less artistry in my experience they don't yeah they're put faster turnaround yeah so so when you say comics from a comic book store i think of art right i think of like actual people doing hand drawing like art or whatever and then when i think of web comic i think of stick figures and to throw them into the same category just feels wrong no, because there is an epic webcomic that has so much artistry that I was going to mention is my favorite, which is Hyperbole and a Half. Ooh, and that artist does yes. amazing work all in Microsoft Paint. Way but, better. But really incredible artwork. Way better one. than Cyanide and Happiness. And storytelling. Vicky and I yeah. actually bought uh, her book because she put out a book of a collection mm-hmm. of her webcomics. Talk about her like stuff makes me laugh so. You mean hard. her comics you in that happen bone. to be on the web? <laughs> no, <laughs> Jeff, on the web. Stop hey, trying to make that happen. <laughs> talk about like a, a web comic. Talk about something that just hits you right in the chest, man. Her yeah. stuff on depression and just wonderful. Uh, that sounds weird. It's to very say, real. Yeah, those sound like real. great comics, and I will check those out. <laughs> check it out. Do yeah, hyperbole and a half. Well, so she started on the web as like just a simple blog and blew up to like a, mu- a million viewers, and then got a book deal. So now is in print comic and has like full illustrated like book books. So then, out. okay, but that sounds she, amazing. But, but she's then still that does a web comic. So, but she's been published. So when does it not become a web? Co- does it's, its origins a- have to be in the web? I think so. Yes. And who says web anymore? Really? Come on. (laughs) Jeff, you're so mad. (laughs) I think once you start ingesting some web comics, you'll realize they're just different. You know, the oatmeal is another one that has a ton of artistry to it. The oatmeal's hilarious and also crass. Just to warn you, but I'm all for all of this. I just think that they've (laughs) named it poorly. So mine, uh, I guess, is kind of a question. Because it always makes me feel uncomfortable when it happens. But when you order food and you go to pick it up, do you tip people that like bag the food for you at a restaurant? Yeah, of course you tip. <laughs> How much? Twenty percent. You could tip less than twenty. I, I don't think if you it's tip. Like a delivery. I don't think you tip. Okay, what? the reason you, Mona you're just talking said... about you're talking about if I do at a restaurant, if I do a pickup order, if I wait, 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 wait. Well, hold wait, on, hold I'm on. trying to clarify the the situation. All right, so Alan, let let me clarify. So are you saying that if I call a restaurant for a pickup order, whether I should tip or not, the yeah. person who hands me the bag? Yeah, if you drive to the restaurant and you are filling out the transaction and you are walking out with your bags, you know, are you supposed to tip the person 
that put the I stuff would in say absolutely I would say no I would say that there's no social contract in which in that situation where you would need to tip and that being said like my wife and I we made our living on tips for for a very large portion of our married life she was a waitress and I was a pizza delivery person if the person is just handing you food that someone else prepared and it's just been sitting there I don't see why you would have to tip. Now, that's not to say that I wouldn't tip just because I'm a default tipper because I know how important it is. <laughs> but I don't think that there should, there's a social contract in which that situation needs to be tipped. I feel bad. I feel like I have to. What about you, Mona? Would you tip if you walk in and there's... If, uh, I, if I just pick up food, I usually leave at least a buck or two because hmm. I appreciate their time and effort. And sometimes the tips get split amongst the kitchen staff and stuff like that. So I don't know. I just feel like I try to air on the side of being generous but it's also because i've worked in the restaurant industry and i know how shitty people can be so yeah but do you think people yeah. should tip i think like, so i mean restaurant workers don't make that much money you know and if you can mm-hmm. tip then you should tip and it's always percentages for me so you're saying a buck or two because i always wonder like should i do 15 percent? should i do i usually do i mean yeah like i don't sit there and do the something. math like if you i'm know? just picking up like a yeah a single meal like i'll just tip a, a buck or two i do know people though who have waited um full time and they don't leave anything less than five dollars no matter what the order is hmm. and i think that's kind of a cool like a minimum tip amount because honestly like getting a tip of like 75 cents because someone has done the math is like really annoying right <laughs> like, you can't live on f- 75 cents i'm not saying you have to tip five dollars every time but um i do think there should be like minimum tip amounts that you just do as a courtesy as a human being but okay so i was actually going to go with a tipping-esque scenario because i recently ordered some furniture and i wasn't sure like which things were tippable and which weren't like are you supposed to tip a plumber or someone who's delivering furniture or something like that i wasn't sure yes are you i delivered for okay so here i can speak from from uh experience i delivered furniture for a summer after high school beds specifically yeah and it's always the people who were uh, the least well off the tipped. It was always the rich people that were like, hey, can you run next door and grab this and bring this down the street? And we're always like, oh, my gosh. But is that a percentage scenario? Interesting. If you're going to tip somebody for refilling your water, why wouldn't you tip someone for carrying your bed up five freaking flights of stairs and then assembling it for an hour and a half? And you're going to use that for 10 years. Like, it just makes no sense. But it's percentage. Like if I buy a thousand dollar bed, <laughs> I'm supposed to give you a hundred bucks or no, or no, no, 150. No, so it's like the, what? It should. I I would default. It depends on how much like work it is. A twenty. A twenty is the gold okay. standard for delivery people. If it's something significant, yeah. See, well, yeah. Good to you know. can think about their time. Maybe it took like them them like an hour or two to like pick up the bed, drive it over, and Absolutely. drop it off. So you're you're paying someone for time rather than effort in that case, right? And or, and or if you're purchase. buying, yeah, exactly. And if you're buying a bed that has a canopy that takes like an hour and a half to put together in your attic and it's 115 degrees, you should like. <laughs> that's actually. Oh, this sounds God. very specific, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's a, it was a piece of artwork, I guess. I don't know. Lots of metal connecting parts and. uh at least don't complain while they're putting it together. But like, no, maybe offer gosh, some water. You know, worst. just, just stand at the door, sweat. man. It's hot up here. I'm glad I'm not up here. And then walk away. <laughs> <laughs> Give them a gospel tract while they're sweating. You know, oh, that's awesome. This is what hell's going to be like, folks. So. <laughs> you think this is bad? <laughs> you don't want to go there, do you? Hey, if you want to be a good Christian, offer a soda to people at the very, very least. Whoever comes to your house, keep some ginger ale in your fridge. It's important. Yeah. That's good. Well, that will do it for us this week. 
If you enjoy what you hear and you want to support Irenacast, you can go to irenacast.com slash support for the many ways to show love to the show. Also, if you resonate with our content, check out our Facebook group, Post Evangelicals. We started this group for people like us who want to connect and build community. Uh, You can find the link in the show notes to check that out. So for this week, I'm Jeff. I'm Mona. And I'm Alan. Thanks for joining the conversation. For the cold open, can I suggest that we use my, if you're going to regulate my Yeah, let's stop the recording real quick.